you would please turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Just as a recap, last time we spent our entire discussion on uh, Psalm 95. And you might want to also put a bookmark there because we will look at that in its context briefly in a minute. But So it's, today our goal is to, I'm going to try to, for, for us to cover essentially almost two full chapters in Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews has a very important message for you, right? Uh, it was a message for his and his recipients, and I think it's a very important message for us as well. So Hebrews chapter 3. Now, Hebrews chapter 2 um, is, of course, and Hebrews chapter 1 just came before. And Hebrews 1 and 2 are very much a contrast between the angels and Jesus. And there's a discussion of Jesus as priest. And, uh, you know, there's a little Moses thrown in there, too. That's especially going to, um, we'll see that more as we go through. So if we look, starting with Hebrews chapter 3, This first paragraph, verses 1 through 6, I look at as a transition paragraph. He is transitioning from his previous discussion into um, the the discussion he's going to have until close to the end of chapter 4, where he will then transition into another related, but another discussion. So, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Um, So let's stop there real quick. You know, notice the word apostle um, here. It's it's got some generic terminology. Apostle means different things. Apostle can just simply mean someone who is sent. And I think that's the basic idea here. Uh, Jesus was sent. And one of the, actually the point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus was sent in a very special way. Well, the prophets sent, sure, the, prophet, the prophets were apostles too because they were sent by God. Uh, the unique thing, all right, the thing that the author of Hebrews is capitalizing on and focusing on is Jesus was not sent as a prophet merely, though he was clearly a prophet. He was sent as a son, right? So he is son as apostle, sent from God. And if you think back to, for example, Jesus' parable of the vineyard, where God sends servants and then finally, or, or the vineyard owner sends service, and, and finally the vineyard owner sends his son, all of them are apostles. They are all messengers um, standing in for someone else, right? The son being the greatest, and that's exactly what the author Hebrews is focusing on. So he is the apostle but also the high priest of our confession, something he's already talked about, the necessity of Jesus being fully human in every way. Because if Jesus wasn't fully human, he could not be a high priest. That was something you'll see in chapter 2. So he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. So nothing actually new there. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, uh, people who are Old Testament readers are going to certainly think of Moses, maybe they not, might not have used this term or not, but as an apostle, Moses, absolutely. Moses was sent as a prophet, as an apostle, all right, from God, all right? Not the 12 apostles that we think of, but 
a messenger from God. And so, just as Moses was faithful in his duties, Moses wasn't perfect, but Moses was faithful in his duties, all right, Jesus also. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted more worthy of glory, or counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He's got a contrast here between Jesus and Moses. All right? Jesus is more worthy than Moses. Well, in what ways? Well, you know, if you think of who's, 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 what's greater, the builder of a house or a house? Well, the builder of a house, because the builder of a house can make another house. All right? Um, houses can't make houses. Builders are greater than houses. All right? That works totally as an analogy. Is he mean by this that uh, Jesus is the builder of the house of God? I mean, that's true. Maybe what he means here. That could certainly be there. And then he's got another one. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Is he actually trying to say here, as a part of this analogy, that Jesus is the builder and Jesus is God? Maybe. Or maybe he's just using it as an analogy. Now, God is greater than all things, all right, and he builds all things, all right. Is it just is it just an analogy, or is it actually trying to say something Christological? I'll give you a maybe. I'm actually not entirely sure. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And so there's that repetition of the same theme that we saw in the very opening of the book of Hebrews. And now is when he switched topics. And we are in his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. All right, and that right there establishes uh, our subject matter for the rest of the chapter and up until the end of chapter, almost the end of chapter four. And so let's let's read that. And uh, this is where you should totally flip open your Psalm ninety-five, if you would. I'm going to read what the author of the book of Hebrews has, and I want you to read from Psalm ninety-five. Okay. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, all right, and then this is beginning the the, the quotation from um, Psalm 95, and that would be specifically Psalm 95, uh, verse seven, verse 7d, the very last line of, of verse seven in Psalm 95. Okay. All right. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What are the differences you're going to see? You see significant differences. You know, not, who cares about the minor ones? Significant differences you see between your English translations of uh, Psalm 95 and what I just read. Anything? Narrow 
Meribah and rebellion. Okay, Meribah and rebellion. And what's what else is missing? Massa is also missing. All right. On the surface, all right, that looks like a. Wow, that's totally weird. Why is Psalm 95 totally missing those words? All right. You might recall something, though. This is actually. Actually, not. This is a non event, as you might say. Um, you might recall something from our discussion of why that would be the case. Do you remember? Yes, this is the Septuagint. And the words mean those things. All right? Meribah and Massa are like made up proper names. All right? They named these place, this place Meribah because there was a rebellion there. And they named this place Massa because there was testing there. And so when the Septuagint translators are going through and, and translating Psalm 90, 95, they're like, Get into the oh, that's totally the Hebrew word for rebellion, and oh, yeah, and at the the testing, and so they just translated it instead of treating it as a proper name. So, you know, it's one of those things that if you don't if you don't remember that factoid, you go, why is this text so different from the Hebrew Bible? And it's actually it's not. It's it's the same thing. It's just translated. It's not taken as a a proper name. All right, with that behind us, uh, we can continue on in this. So we have our, that reading, all right? And this is going to establish the text, as we discussed last time. This is the text that the author of Hebrews is going to exegete, essentially, all right? From now and towards the end of chapter 4. And exactly where you should make a, a transition in this next very long paragraph is unclear. I'm, I'm going to make one uh, go to the end of, chapter, uh, of verse 14 and just call that a unit, all right? So he's got the, the bit here about the psalm. And then it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Okay. So with that in mind, I want you to read through this. And I've got a few questions. I want you to think about this passage just for a little bit. All right. Here's essentially your your questions, all right? Um, what does rest mean here? All right, why don't you think about that? What does rest mean here? And what is the significance of the word today? All right? Give you a couple minutes. The word today, because it shows up more than once. the next few verses to get a better hold on it, but I want you to think about it right now. What verse is that in Hebrews? Uh, today is mentioned in Hebrews 3.7 and in Hebrews 3.13.
you repeat the question? What does rest mean? And what is the significance of the word today? The author of Hebrews finds great significance in the word today as we go through this passage. All right. Now, I don't want you to give me your answer for the word rest. All right? I want you to wait on that. I want you, just wanted you to think about it, because we'll talk about it here in a second. What about the word today? In ESV, I have today. It's in quotes, right? Like he's quoting from the psalm, which I think is entirely appropriate here. All right? What's, what's, what's important about the word today, here or even in the original psalm? Anybody? Yeah. I always understood it as just like um, a sense of urgency. Okay. It's it's bringing something into today, right? Like, like right now, right? And we see this in the psalm as well, right? Because if if you're if your theology, all right, if your Old Testament theology is such that God has given their people their final rest, and they are their state of rest, all right, Psalm 95 has words for you, all right, because in Psalm 95, he brings, in, brings back up this thing, and he doesn't in Psalm 95 think of just of old. He says, today. Do not harden your hearts. All right? And so he's bringing up essentially the fact that if you harden your hearts today, and this, of course, is a long time ago from the author of Hebrews' standpoint, if you, bring it, if you harden your hearts today, you will not experience God's rest. And the author of Hebrews is doing the same thing. All right? He's writing to who, who knows you know, to whom he is writing. But to, whoever, to whomever he is writing, he says... Today, talking to them, all right? Still a relevant question for these first century believers. Today, do not harden your hearts. He is taking this old concept of rest and saying, this is just as relevant a question for you as it was in Psalm 95, and as it was in the time of Joshua, all right? Just as relevant. Today, do not harden your hearts, all right? Even though he's quoting an old text, all right. The text itself, and we discussed this last week, shows that they weren't truly in rest. And we looked at another psalm. And we also talked about how, because um, it brought in the same basic ideas, and you had the northern kingdom taken away out of any sort of resting place and in exile. All right. So let's let's look at our text again. All right. So take care, brothers. This is verse twelve of chapter three. Lest there be any of you in evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Think the people who were rebelling against Moses. Think, right? and what was the result of the people rebelling against Moses? Death, right? Ultimately, they cannot go into the promised land. They will die before experiencing any sort of rest. All right? For the psalm, it's the same message. For the author of Hebrews, the same message. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by this deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And I want to come back to that one later. So let's move on. So we've got now another section. All right. So we've got 15 to the end of the chapter. And so we've got here, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. Once again, quoting from the same section of the psalm. For who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses, and with whom he was provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So he's establishing at this point. All right, he's establishing a theological point. There is such a thing as rest. We still need to define what that is. All right? What makes it so that you do not enter rest? All right? Unbelief. And what's another word that it talks about a lot? All right? Disobedience, hardening. All right? So it's not just a faith thing. It's very much also, it's a, how does faith work out? Lack of faith works out in disobedience. Lack of faith works out in hardening. Disobedience, hardening, lack of faith, all of those things mean, in Moses' time, you don't make it into rest. In, in the psalmist's times, you get kicked out of rest. All right? In the Hebrews' time, you don't make it into rest. All right? If that's the case. Now, chapter 4. You hear his voice, that's a pretty important phrase. That's true. It implies that many can't hear it, which they're unable to That's true. Because even those who heard his voice in the uh, closest time didn't really hear it. That, that is true. You know, I, I don't, you know, we could make a hardening point of this. I don't actually think that's his point, but it is true, right? And at least in terms of the psalmist, right? You, you've got the psalmist writing a psalm. This is... Um, Who's going to hear the psalm? Not everyone. All right. If you hear his voice, all right. If you're listening to this psalm that I am singing right now, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, and as at Massa. Also, Jesus yeah. often made the point that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Absolutely. Same idea. That's true. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 is our next unit. All right? So I'm going to read through it, and I want you to think through it, and I'm going to ask you, to, um, I'm going to ask you a few questions. All right? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The tenses there are very interesting. We'll come back to it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. 
and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. All of this is an exposition of Psalm 95, except that. All right, now he's quoting, right? Now he's quoting from after creation. God rested on the seventh day. And again, in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Okay. So, just in general, what's the connection between this paragraph and the previous? What's the basic idea that connects them? And what's the, what's the uh, logical idea that connects them? The rest hasn't been achieved yet. That's a, that's a major point, right, in the psalm. And verse 8, for if Joshua, Joshua had given them rest, all right? What's, what is the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 4? All right, the therefore tells you. What is, what is the, the word therefore usually used for? He's transitioning. He's, he is now making, he is moving forward in his sermon. All right? He is moving forward from, let me talk to you about all the dead people, all right, in the time of the wanderings, because it happened because of their disobedience who didn't make it in. Let me tell you about that. Therefore, all right, now he's really very much switching towards his readers. All right? They, they all died in the wilderness. Therefore, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach us. Reach it. Okay? All right. So there's some very interesting things about this. One, hearing the message, as we know, is not enough. All right? For you to hear the gospel message is not good enough. All right? It must be united with something. It must be united with faith. To hear it is good if you believe it. Alright? But you must believe it. Because they heard the message and they did not believe it. And then God killed them outside of the promised land. Okay? Yes, Bill? Isn't that the therefore and that was saying they didn't enter it. And yes, the, the rest is still there. But don't be like them and, not, and fail to enter it because of yes. disobedience and Yep. Are you going to be like those people several thousand years ago who heard the message and failed to believe it? All right. If so, what happened? They died without achieving rest. Absolutely. So now he's like he's exegeting an Old Testament passage. He's like, what does this mean? All right, you've got David talking about today, applying it to his listeners, and thinking back, well, author Hebrews, I'm going to do the same thing. Therefore, you also, when you hear it, must unite what you hear with faith. If, de- if you don't, 
you shall not enter that rest. Now we've got to figure out what the rest is. All right, so let's think about that. What is rest? All right, and something important to think about would be if we think about not only the context of Psalm 95, but also 4.8. All right, so think about 4.8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is that? What's rest? Is that what the author of Hebrews is looking forward to? It's similar. It's related. Not exactly the same. Now, how does that connect with God's rest? What's the connection between your rest that you would get if you believe in God's rest? Because he connects it here, right? He just quoted, all right? I'll read it for you. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. He is clearly linking God's rest, whatever that means, all right? And our rest, Okay, it's a session of labor. Now, there's a question. When God rested, what was the state of things at the time? What is very different about when God rested and right now? Everything was good. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. All right? In the sense of there was there was no sin, all right? There was no fallen man. And was upright at the time because Adam and Eve were created upright and then fell. All right, so what's really fascinating to me about this is by connecting the two, all right, he's basically connecting the rest that ultimately the Old Testament looked for, all right, all right, is not you're in the promised land. And you've got these nice cities that you didn't build and these nice cisterns that you did not dig and these nice vineyards that you did not plant and cultivate, right? Um, That was not the ultimate picture. The author of Hebrews, and this is progressive revelation, the author of Hebrews is saying the rest we're looking for is like God's rest, all right? Which is the secession of heavy labor. But I think theologically is another way of saying new creation. All right? Because what was God's what was the world like when God was at rest? All right? The original creation pristine. All right? And so when they talk about rest here, he's always talking about it as future. All right? Now, there are some past elements of it. You have entered it, but there's always a future element he keeps bringing in because he says, if you do not believe and you disobey, you will not 
enter it in the future. So there's both this past aspect to it, and a and a present or a past uh, and a future aspect to it. One of the fascinating, I think, ambiguities in verse eight is this. All right, uh, if you read verse eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. What is the Hebrew name of Jesus? It's Joshua, right? And if you look at this, I mean, it's just, and it just says Jesus when you read it, all right? It just says, and if Jesus had given them rest, all right, um, God would not have spoken of another day later on. This is one of the, you know, the, as far as I know, every English translation translates it as Joshua. But it's a very interesting ambiguity there, all right? Did Joshua give them rest? No. Did Jesus give them rest at that time? Also, no. I, don't know. I think it's a very interesting little ambiguity there. Do you know why Jesus was translated as Joshua? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Joshua translated as Jesus, right. So, like, Yeshua would be the, the Hebrew name of Jesus, all right? And if you're going to bring Yeshua into English, you can just, Y-E-S-H, but nobody does that and haven't done that for a long time. If you bring it into Greek, it's like Jesus, all right? So Joshua or Yeshua becomes Jesus. So they're very similar, all right? And so in this particular case, it is truly ambiguous from a purely word standpoint. Is this, is, which one is this? Is this Jesus or is this Jesus that we're talking about here? Or if you want to say it a different way, is this Joshua or is this Joshua that we're talking about here, right? Either one, because it's just, this, it's just simply the same name. Now, contextually, it makes sense. Translating this as Joshua does make sense. But given that we know what we know about the lordship of Jesus, we would also say the other one does also kind of make sense too. Hmm. Minus, yeah. Jesus. Really? KJV. What KJV? Yeah, mine. Interesting. Jesus. Which one do you have? KJV. Does anybody other than KJV? Joshua in a footnote. Joshua in a footnote? Yeah. Okay, perfect. Sweet. So they kept it, which is which is fantastic. So if Joshua slash Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. All right? And, of course, speaking of another day later on, that is a reference to Psalm 95. That's not a reference to um, the actual you know, book of Joshua. That's Psalm 95 looking forward to a future rest at that point. Also notice in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. All right? And this is part of, of what, when he reads the psalm, all right, something he sees significant in that psalm, all right, 4 verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, all right, so long afterward. So he's just drawing a theological point over, he's, he, he sees, he reads his Old Testament, and he sees that he knows the time gap. He reads this and goes, oh yeah, David said so long afterwards that this was the case. Therefore, Joshua did not give them rest. So he's just being a you know, good exegete of the, the Hebrew Bible. Now that being in the land is very clearly not the rest in verse 8. We already discussed that. All right. Yeah. So, um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to argue that what you just said is not what this means. Mm-hmm. In the past, I I think I'd associated this with um, resting from trying to fulfill the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
So is he writing to people who already were not trying to fulfill the law because they already believed in Jesus? Or like, would, would that idea totally not work just because of his audience? So um, there is definitely an element in Hebrews of make sure you don't focus on the old to the exclusion of the new which definitely applies to the law. I mean, there's way too much emphasis on Jesus being greater than Moses, right? For there to not be that there. So I don't think that is, I don't think that's, that's wrong in terms of the whole epistle. I, 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 that certainly fits. From a time period perspective, that also does fit for all of this particular time period, except, for example, maybe the time period of the book of Hebrews itself, right? Because it would have been a law-related thing. But I don't think specifically it's rest from the law here. Um, because I think it's rest from... When do you get to the rest? Is part of the question about this. And he does not explicitly say this here. Where does, when do you get to the rest? All right? You don't get to the rest fully when you start believing. And the reason why is because he puts it in the future for the believers here. Do not fall away. Because if you do, you shall not enter my rest. So clearly, rest has to have a future element to it. Which is another reason why I wouldn't specifically say law. Yet there's the past element to it as well. As we saw earlier in one verse, I said, all right, that there is a past element to it. For we have in verse, chapter 3, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ past, if indeed we hold our con- original confidence firm to the end future. All right? So, in other words, something will have happened in the past if. <laughs> You hold firm your confidence and faith into the future. It will have happened in the past if you make it to the end. Right? Which is exactly what 1 John says, essentially. Right? There are some people that were false prophets. Right? But they left us. Why did they left us? Why did they leave us? Because God made them leave us. Because He wanted to make it clear that they were not actually of us. All right? So it's very consistent with that notion. There was a thing that happened in the past, and you will know that you got that thing in the past because you made it in the future. All right? Let's look at the last paragraph where he really drives this home. Chapter 4, verse 11. All right? Now his, this is his sermon point, all right? And this is my point for you and for me. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Spoken of as future. Right? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
So his message to them is, yeah, there is a past aspect of entering. All right, the rest, we, we believe that. But his message is abundantly clear. All right. You will have entered that rest if you make it to the end. All right. It's not something like if you make it to the end, at that point, whew, you'll have become a Christian or something like that. It's not that. You will have entered that rest if you make it to the end. Which is why he's quite fine saying, audience member, and he's treating them as Christians. Christians, do you want to make it to the new creation? Do you want to enter God's Sabbath rest? I think the answer is yes. And for Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, how do you get there? How do you obtain to that? Do you have to have faith? Yes. Do you have to have obedience to the end? Clearly, yes. All right? We believe in this idea of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Sometimes called the preservation of the saints. We have a doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. How does this thing happen to us? All right. How do we, in fact, get preserved? And how do we, in fact, persevere? All right. Well, it is God's work within us, for sure. It is, it is faith that we have. It is works we do. But it is God's works in us all right, that we are doing. The author of Hebrews here is not saying, I don't think, anything different. All right? On the contrary, he's making that exactly, that he is basically saying, perseverance of the saints. You make it into God's rest. You show that you have entered, in a sense, God's rest now, if you persevere to the end. So, keep that in mind. Persevere to the end, or you will be damned. You will die. That is the message of the author of Hebrews. Alright? It is... He was very concerned about them, and this is not the only time he has this exhortation. He's already said it twice in the book of Hebrews, and he will have it more again. But the message is super clear for you, and super clear for me. Alright? If you imagine the parable of the sower, alright? You imagine the parable of the sower, it's not a different message than that. Alright? That has seed, which is message, falling on ground and either never growing at all or growing but getting choked out or growing and dying. It's the same exact message. You must persevere. And now based on this passage, 
If that's the case, what's your job related to everyone else's perseverance? Because the, the author of Hebrews is not an individualist. All right? He's not saying, you individually, you must persevere. And that's the only part of this message. What's your job? Yes, that's part of this discussion here. All right? As long as it is today, you must be exhorting your fellows to make it. All right? This is why later he will say, do not give up the assembly of the brothers. All right? It is your job. You cannot be exhorted to persevere if you never spend time with other Christians. All right? And it is your job to help in the perseverance. You are one of God's agents for the perseverance of other people, which is a pretty heavy task. Yeah. I have a Catholic friend. Yeah. I think he's a brother. And he told me one time about his wife. My job is to help her get to heaven. And her job is to help me get to heaven. We're kind of simple the way he said it, but I felt like it was very profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that's any different than what he's, he's saying here, except it's not husband and wife, though that's true. It's the church. That's what we do. Yeah. I think um, something else that's being said is that the, the people in the wilderness, they were identified as being the people of God. But most of them he was not pleased with. Mm-hmm. did not enter the rest. And, you know, maybe this book is written to the, the people who were gathering, right? And he's saying, just being a part of the group is not going to do it. Yes. There's historical precedent that proves it. Yes. Remember, God was not pleased. So you, even though you're part of this group, that's not going to be enough. Just to be a part of the group. Persevere, believe. Yes. Amen. If you hear his voice, hearing the voice is not enough. would call it calling the herd. Yeah. If you hear his voice, believe. Right? So, simple message. A lot of text we covered today, but simple message. Persevere and help your brethren persevere as well. It's your job to do that. Okay? Any other final thoughts? Any questions before we be dismissed? Yeah. Could you see another connection in verse 4 when he quotes um, maybe from Genesis, God rested on the seventh day from all his works? Mm-hmm. Could you see that as the connection in that? We are to strive and then rest as God worked and then rested. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's totally right. There's a time of striving and there's a time of resting. Now is not the time of resting. Now is the time of striving. Just as the first six days of creation, God was, was striving and rested. So, yes. Yeah. Now is... All right. But it's, it's very interesting how he has... All right. Part of the rest is kind of in the past, but clearly has it in the future as well, right? And we think of that as, well, we're, if you have believed and entered the rest, you are, you are in Christ, right? You are in Christ. You have entered into that rest. And how do we know we've entered that rest? 
if we persevere till the end. All right? Yeah. So strive now. Rest later. It's an important attitude. And we're all one day closer to entering that rest. Or not. Right? Or not. Okay, let's be dismissed. Uh, Grady, will you please pray for us?